0: Welcome to Meowcore, the podcast where I, Laura, show my cool friend Panya the music that I like, which meow. is mostly, there she is, which is mostly hard rock and heavy metal. How are you doing today, Panya?
1: You know, it's a pretty good day. Yesterday was sunny. Today is sunny. Uh, I think all the cats are still sitting in the bed. I don't see any cats in here yet. That might change. That usually changes. Nice. So it's a pretty good day.
0: Yeah, and it's also a special day because we have a guest on the podcast for the first time. Um, that also friend... makes it a good day. Yeah, um, yeah, it's special and it's good. Um, I have my friend Lara Coimbra from Brazil, and she's gonna tell us about a Japanese band that is very important to her. Hi, Lara. Oh, it's
1: good that your voices Hello. sound very different because your names sound very similar.
0: It does. Who are you going to tell us
1: about,
2: Lara? Um, Hello, everybody. Uh, My name is Lara from Brazil, like she said. Today I'm going to present you a band called Bucktick. Uh, They are from Japan. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: And um, recently their vocalist passed away. It's been a month today. And we already uh, decided. I think Laura uh, invited me to the podcast uh, when I just began uh, getting to know the band, and then um, unfortunately that happened. But we kept uh, with the idea. So today we are going to show you some songs by those we will amazing use this to honor persons. His memory. Yes, we will.
1: Can use this to honor his memory. And it will still be wonderful. It's been a long time since I really listened to any Japanese bands. I used to be absolutely fascinated with Japanese music, especially J-pop. But I think that had a lot to do with all the anime I was watching.
0: Sure. yeah.
1: And I don't think this is, this is a different style of music, I think, than what I'm familiar with.
2: Yeah, I, I came a long way uh, about Japanese music. I also started with J-pop, mainly 80s J-pop. Uh And, uh, sorry about the noises. Um, and then I, when I began to get into goth music in general, uh, one day I was just, you know, coming back from work and Spotify recommended me something and it sounded gothy. I loved it. And when, when the singer began singing, it was in Japanese and I was like, oh my God, finally something that combined uh, two interests that I have <laughs> them being uh, foreign languages and goth music and to my surprise that was the only song that sounded gothy <laughs> <Hey>. <laughs> at first right because the the rest of that album was very experimental and different and uh, you know very a uh, very uh, experimental rock guided
0: mm-hmm
1: one day somebody's gonna explain what that means to me experimental like as far as I'm concerned it's just it's music it's if it sounds different to what you did before that's fine but what makes it experimental like you found a sound that somehow nobody else has found what,
0: is this? what do you think Clara
2: um, when, when, I was, when I was researching and taking notes for this uh, podcast I, I realized that when they say alternative music usually they put that label on on something that doesn't sound pop or doesn't sound rock. Uh, mm. I mean, when you have a mixture of two genres or more into one, uh, they usually have a hard time, uh, putting a label on it for selling, uh, purposes. So, uh, they kinda have a hard time categorizing that kind of music.
0: Hmm. Panya I think the driver era, are experimental pop. That's because they go, true. right, they go beyond the boundaries of R&B, but it's very R&B and beyond the boundaries of pop. And they're very, very they're electronic. Pop. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Okay. I suppose part of my confusion is that I'm used to, I'm used to reading a genre that is both somewhat easy to define and then internally impossible to define. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean we say it science feels, fiction and fantasy yeah. but the reality is that you really should be saying speculative speculative fiction because there's <laughs> so much crossover and so much fluidity once you get inside the boundaries of this contains elements of things that cannot exist in the real world once you get inside that boundary it's, it's so complex and so interwoven and i think one of the reasons that we started this podcast is because Laura could hear things in the music that I didn't even know to listen for. And I think some of those are things that are part of what defines music as being part of one genre or another.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah. So, um, so we can, um, I I would like to start off uh, because the the genre they develop is really difficult to tap on. I I still have a hard time trying to explain to people what BookTick is and what their style is because they kept changing uh, through the years. But um, I could say they they have some influences on mostly punk music and some new wave stuff would you like to hear more on what they were uh inspired on
1: let's listen to one of their songs and get an idea of what exactly we're listening to
2: okay so uh the first song i chose is from their second album it's called sexual xxx and it was their first um their first uh, uh recording label uh release because they released an album before that uh in the same year but it was an indie um hmm. it was an indie production and they they reached i guess sixth uh place in in their first single which was indie nice. yeah and then when they they got a they got a deal with a recording label called uh, let me see. I think it was Victor. Yes. Mm. It's a recording, it's a famous uh, recording enterprise in Japan called Victor. Not one of the most important, but they, they were very relevant in the day. So I chose the first song called Sexual XXX, the same title as the album. And um, let me see what you think, okay. you know, given the, the time and what was going on then. Let's
0: what year was it again? Sexual 5X.
2: It was 1987,
1: Ooh, and it I was
2: their old. second album uh, release.
1: Oh, I feel old. I chose All right. the,
2: the music video for you.
1: Oh, I'm going to be so distracted. <laughs> okay, let's listen to <laughs> Sexual 5X by Buck-Tick. Let's go. Oh, I'm going to like this band. I'm going to like this. This is visual K. I know. Oh no, I know this style. This is visual K. Um, this is this actually, is like X Japan. This is like Lark and yeah. This is this is like when I started sliding over <laughs> into J Rock from the anime music. I'm gonna like these guys.
2: Yeah. Um. I don't know. They changed so much their style. I I can't say the same about X Japan or Lark and, and shit. Um but they they just kept changing and that's amazing i i was really hooked on this song from the first time i heard it
1: (laughs) i feel like a lot of the bands that we've already done for the podcast especially the ones that have been going for a long time for 30 40 50 years they do change you have to change you have Mm -hmm. to evolve if you keep doing exactly the same music you become stale as a musician you become bored with the things that you do for yourself and the heart that drew people in at first is gone. Mm.
0: Why don't The Cure sing about sex? I would have listened to The Cure if they were. (laughs) (laughs) Because this sounds like The Cure.
2: The the Cure was one of their major influences, uh, mainly about uh, songwriting. Songwriting-wise, they were very influenced by The
1: Cure. Mm-hmm. There's a tone to the guitars that I'm trying to figure out, and I don't know how to describe it, except that it sounds even more electronic than anything else I've ever heard. That sounds stupid.
0: Yeah, it does, it does. <laughs> it's the it 80s. does sound stupid? <laughs> no, it's it, the guitars do sound kind of electronic, like they did in a lot of goth bands at the time. They, they were ringing in a strange way. But this is and so... And it was almost
1: uh, a higher... I'm not sure if it was
0: the tuning
1: or if they were just playing higher notes.
2: I I would say it's the tuning. Um, given the, the history on their one of their uh, guitar players. Okay. Uh, I think I haven't presented the band members.
0: <laughs> we yeah, talked We talked. <laughs>
2: okay, okay, so... Uh, is there any way I can send uh, a picture because I don't know if you're going to remember everybody from the video
1: it doesn't so matter. Guess. Just tell um, us the names and tell okay, us what instrument sorry. they play okay and sorry and the um, to remember. Look up on <laughs> sorry
2: so uh, if you remember in the video there is a guy with uh, something written on his cheek what mm-hmm. instrument That's- does he play he's the guitarist and his name okay. is Imai for short he's Imai he's uh, the, main, he, he is the main songwriter, main lyricist uh, together mm-hmm. with the vocalist uh, Sakura Yatsuchi mm-hmm. um, there's a, another guitar player he's called uh, Hoshino and oh. they also have uh, two brothers in the band they have a, a younger brother called Yuta and the older brother is the drum it's the drummer called he has a different name. He chose a uh, kind of a occidental name, like a western name. He's called Toll. Okay. <laughs> Toll? And yeah. He's he's the he's the like the Ini Anisan, like the older brother in the okay. band. Okay. And uh, the younger the, one plays bass then. Utah is the one playing bass, uh black hair. Shorty, okay,
0: and the hair is still up on everybody, yeah. Yeah, they, yeah that's they what made me go. Oh, okay. <laughs> mm-hmm.
2: Uh, people say they had like uh over a foot long
1: height. <laughs> I can't imagine <laughs> because <of> the, hair. <laughs> the effort it took to do that with their hair,
2: yeah. And the drummer still kept the hair up up until 2023 he yeah. still kept his hair up he made a promise
0: <laughs> and he,
2: he kept it
1: oh, oh i have to i'm like checking mine now <laughs> it's like is it, okay? is it okay like yes it's pinned up but it's not all stiff and crunchy the way theirs must be it's okay <laughs> it's okay
0: don't worry that was a way in which I'm not used to listening to songs about sex. It was kind of nonchalant. Oh, ho, uh, ha, sexual intercourse. Yeah. I love
1: the song. <laughs> it is kind of casual. There's no sense of, uh, what's the word I want? It's, there's no sense of self-consciousness. Although Mm -hmm. it's possible that that's buried in cultural cues that we don't know to look for.
0: Hmm. You mean they're not embarrassed and they're not worried that they are breaking taboos when they talk about these things? Right. They never were. Good. I
1: mean, again... It is possible that that's buried in cultural cues that we don't know we're looking at, but I don't really think so.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm glad they did it this way. More power to uh, them.
2: They, they actually, there's a, uh, a curious fact about uh, the release of this song. Uh, let me see if I can find it. Ah, found it. Uh, they actually auditioned uh, this song for the judging committee in the biggest Japanese TV channel called NHK. Mm. Uh, but they they banned the song from their uh, TV <laughs> station. <laughs> Probably because it
1: was so unselfconscious. conscious. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, how dare, how dare.
2: Like, let's choose a song. For the major TV station, the major TV (laughs) channel for the general audience, let's choose a song, and we're going to choose this song. (laughs) Wow! So they were that song was banned, and and instead they chose another uh, TV stations that were more open to that, and TV stations that were actually popular with younger audiences.
1: Hmm. Okay, that's a
2: way to remember them okay yeah uh shall i tell you what happened after that after this video sure Mm -hmm. okay so this album sexual XXX, debuted in uh debuted at uh 33 in the charts in the top 100 it debuted at 33 it was pretty good right um and from then on, they they really worked uh, promoting themselves. So they started a they they started a craze about stickers in VK bands, and they they just kept uh, putting uh, stickers all over Tokyo, like over <laughs> oh, <laughs> over I love it. over thirty thousand stickers around the around Tokyo and other bands started doing the same. Uh, There was, uh, I think police made a a, a law or a policy about that (laughs) because it was really annoying, (laughs) the stickers. (laughs) And and that worked because that attracted uh, the audience. Um, There was an album they did uh, after this one in 1989. They recorded in London. And Mm -hmm. it was the first album to peak at uh, number one in an album chart called Oricon in Japan. They sold over uh, three, three, wait, three hundred (laughs) thousand. Yeah, this album was three hundred thousand, and wait, three hundred twenty thousand copies. And this album was called Taboo. Yeah, they recorded that in London, but they came back to Japan. Um, so that album uh, got things happening quite fast for them. Uh, a year after that, they, they released another album called Akuno Hana, based on a poem by Charles Baudelaire. Oh. And it was their most uh, sold album. They sold uh, four four 440,000 copies. Mm -hmm. and the next song that, that i chose will cover uh an album after that because it was like their peak their golden age and it was when their sound began to change uh quite a bit uh lots of things happened in their personal life so uh the guitarist uh imai he got arrested for lsd possession Oh, oh dear! So he, yeah, he was a couple of months away, and the band was just uh, waiting for him to come back to record uh, <laughs> to record an album. Mm. That was this one, Akonohana.
0: What year is this?
2: Uh, nineteen ninety. Sorry. Okay. They recorded Taboo, nineteen eighty nine. Um, Imai was arrested, and then on January they released on released uh January 1990 they released Akunohana it means uh flowers of evil
0: Ah, oh, okay this that poem
2: yeah so i think that album marks their their peak it's their most uh, sold album and after that some uh changes happened in their personal life so the singer uh Sakurai Atsushi his mother uh passed away when he was on tour uh he married the band stylist and he had a baby mm hmm uh, and then they, they released uh, an album that, in my opinion, it's very complete and very solid. Um, the composition is very, uh, I think, more complex than the other albums. And I really like the direction they went. Um, they also began to, to write more gloomy stuff. Uh, songs that were very uh, touching on the topics of death. And I chose a song from this album called uh, Kuruta Tayo. It means uh, crazy sun. And I, I chose a song that was not a single. I, I, I chose a song that was not a single uh, so you could hear. And I chose a performance from 1992 of that song. That song is called Tayo ni Koro It means... Killed by the sun.
1: Sounds like a vampire.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. That's right. Okay. We're gonna go All listen. Right.
1: Let's go listen to ni Korasareta by Buktek. And then every single Japanese girl sobbed in desire and wanted to save him. Yeah. Wow. Yeah.
2: I think it's a very powerful song because it's like he predicted uh, what was going to happen to him. Mm. What do and you mean? I found out about the song after.
1: <laughs>
2: but how did he predict it? If you read the lyrics, uh, it talks mm-hmm. about somebody like, uh, I'm really sorry about the sound outside. That's okay. Uh, Okay, um, in the beginning of the lyrics, it talks about somebody like um, collapsing as a show begins, as the curtains uh, rises. And on October 19th, that was kind of exactly what
0: happened. Uh. Did I miss that in the beginning? Because all I heard was a vampire story. Let me see.
1: I saw a lot of things about makeup.
0: I wear the makeup of death, he said. Mm -mm -mm. But it was very worthy of of a beautiful... It's not a beautiful death, but it's someone beautiful who is dying. Let's
1: see, let's see, let's see. This is the interesting thing about trying to parse anything to do with anything that's written in a language you're not familiar with. Now,
2: I mean, I wouldn't say it's it was a, a prediction, but it's a unfortunate coincidence. That's what what I would say. And I I felt the song was very powerful because I only learned about it after It doesn't seem so, but I'm not a long-time fan. I found out about him this year, quite quite recently, actually.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And and Laura can remember that because she was the first person I told about everything
0: mm-hmm. yeah and then a few weeks after that you sent me a message and you were crying and you said he died and i knew yeah. who he meant it, it does begin with uh, the curtain rises yeah
1: this is not a translation this is just a ramaji. that's not helpful
2: <laughs> uh. There is a translation above. I don't know if you saw it, if you could read it. No, I saw
1: that. I'm looking for a written one.
2: Mm -hmm. Okay.
1: I'm looking for a a written one that I can read through more quickly and just absorb it.
0: Um, Curtain rises and I wear the makeup of death for you. Don't look at me.
1: Okay, that does sound. Yeah. Mm -hmm. About not
2: being able to move. Mm-hmm.
1: He doesn't move as he's singing the song, which I found that very interesting. That I would have expected him to move around the stage, and he didn't.
2: Yeah. Anyway. Um, yeah, they. You know, their performance is like a, a work in progress. Uh, I think the more I show you, the more it's going to be evident. And in this, this concert uh, is also uh, an album. It's called Climax Together from 1992.
1: Of course it is. Of course it is. <laughs> course it is.
2: <laughs> and, and I think if you want to get into Bucktick, and there are so many albums to begin with, I would recommend you to begin with this live performance and this live uh, recording because they comprise and all, all the best songs of their 80s eras. So
0: mm-hmm.
2: the best songs from the 80s are in this live performance, the, the best versions, because also uh, the studio versions, they don't capture everything the band is, because uh, the quality uh, of the recording and other stuff, uh, they kept changing uh, the arrangement of the songs. And I think the peak of that phase was this concert
1: i mean that does go back to what we were saying earlier about evolution and how that's necessary for a band Mm -hmm. and they're far from the only musicians to continually be tinkering with their sound even on a song that's already been released Mm
0: -hmm. and they sound good yeah everybody sounds good in this recording
1: and has it's a very nice voice. I was distracted by the hair.
0: Do you approve of this hair, Banya?
1: <laughs> yes.
0: <laughs>
1: but then okay. we only really saw him. We didn't see anybody else. We just saw our lead singer. So I don't know what the rest of them were doing with their hair.
2: Mm-hmm. Um... If I did pictures, keep wanting right, to I'll reach
1: be in. No, no. I did keep wanting to reach in and like push his hair out of his face. Like, stop hiding. Stop hiding okay. behind your hair. But then that's sort of the quality of the song, really. That particular song is about it seems to be about it being alone, being hiding, not being seen. And then mm-hmm. the sun comes and it almost sounds in conjunction with the rest of the lyrics, it's almost as though the moment he is seen, he dies. The sun reveals him, mm. and that's, that's death.
0: Oh, that's cool. That
2: sounds pretty much like uh, his personality uh, in the beginning. It doesn't look like, but he was a shy person. Uh, in TV interviews, the band was always an awkward thing because the the reporters, they, they wanted to ask... Uh, both the the singer and the guitarist Imai, they wanted to ask Sakurai and Imai all the questions, but they aren't the talkative type. Uh, the talkative <laughs> type, <laughs> so they kept they kept passing the microphone to the most talkative members of the band, which were uh, the two brothers. <laughs> I, I think I showed Laura uh, some some interviews, and we had a blast laughing at it. Mm-hmm. Just yes. I'll on. be glad to show you the links after after this.
1: Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of uh, a lot of artists in in various types that performative artists that you get them out of character, you get them off stage, and they are very shy. Like they almost like they don't quite know who they are if they're not in that performance.
0: Mm-hmm. But they're still very, very interesting so people. Yeah. It's they not are. that they were completely faking it and someone helped them make up some persona that has nothing to do with them. But they, you know, if you're a musician, you make music, whatever. Right. I was fascinated by, and I'm sure it's possible, but it was more than 20 years ago. What synthesizer magic did they do to make the guitar sound like bells? I don't know that it was. it's uh, a synthesizer. I think it's it a synthesizer
2: probably, it's a synthesizer. Probably, um, if you recall, there is a, a Judas Priest album called Turbo, mm-hmm. and it doesn't sound like a guitar; it sounds like a, a keyboard. That's probably the Ooh. same uh, technology they used. It might have been oh. actual
1: bells, you know.
0: But I could see his fingers. On the guitar, he was—he yeah. was, was playing the bells. Okay, that was funny. I—I was. Was, was not noticing.
1: All right. Although uh, uh, although many remember, other songs he does that. Hold on, because Laura, remember, uh, we had a couple episodes ago. <clears throat> we were talking about how many different sounds were layered into a song and the subtlety of, of multiple guitars. So it's possible that it was both that there were actual bells and the guitar was playing the same notes to give it a deeper richness to the
0: sound. I thought so,
2: too. Um, in in this believe? live performance, uh, the guitarist, in my he plays the bells. He tunes okay. in the guitar, and he he plays the bells using the strings of the guitar. Okay. And it sounds amazing. It does but sound amazing. in the amazing. recording yeah this song this song is from the kuruta tayo album nineteen ninety one i think it was the, one of the albums that took them the the most to record because the uh he kept adding layers and layers to the songs
1: <laughs> yeah
0: that's what i read yeah so that guitar was connected to something that was the a, a sampler maybe synthesizer sampler with the samples of the bells and Good he thing. was playing mm-hmm. that we might check this later. Okay. What's the next song or what happens next?
2: Okay. Then the next song is from the following album to this live performance. It's the following studio album from Kuruta Tayo, And it's personally one of my favorites and it's how I met the band. Mm-hmm. Um, this album, I think the name of this album is the most perfect thing ever. It's called Darker Than Darkness, Style 93. Okay. <laughs> uh, and in this album from 1993, obviously, uh, they take on a much more experimental style because it sounds like rock still, right? They, they have uh, an alternative thing going on. It's not a pure rock, as, you, as one could say. Mm-hmm. Um and in this album there is their most famous song today uh because of internet this song has become uh their most famous song because before internet it wasn't it wasn't an album that sold that much as uh that one in the 80s that I talked about called Akunohana so w- when it was released it wasn't that uh, famous but it became as time uh, went on so there is a song uh, they had two singles for this album one is called dress that i that i showed laura first Mm. it's a very good song but i don't think it uh, it showcases uh the style of that record of them at at the time you know So instead of Dress, which would be the obvious choice, I decided to play for you uh, their second single called Die. It's also a song that taps on the topic of death, obviously. And they are very uh, focused on that topic throughout uh, their career. And the song is, I, I like the lyrics better. I think it's beautiful and also the music video they did i am obsessed about the music video i think the aesthetic on it on it was uh, very well done
0: let's go see it
1: all yeah. right let's listen to die by buck tech the lyrics read like something really would have written it's the same so what? Something Velo would have written. It's uh, the yeah. same imagery, the same sensibility about death, about dying, about love.
0: All these gruesome details, but still, yeah, romantic. the
1: imagery, yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: But the That's music isn't
1: like that at all. Music is very different.
0: Music's kind of flowery and hopeful. Uh, um music wise, uh that's this not album, what I was it's at all. one
2: of my favorites. Um,
1: mm-hmm.
2: one of the co-writers of this song is actually the the other guitarist, uh, Hoshino. hmm And I think uh, whenever I listen to a song that I think it's extremely beautiful and touching, uh Usually it's him <laughs> that did the writing, yeah. uh, the composing of the, the sounds. Like he was more important in the composing of that song than the other guys. So I, I am, I am a really a big fan of the ballads, of the, the melodies uh, he creates,
0: uh, the second guitarist. Mm-hmm. What were you thinking, Panya, about the music?
1: It sounds like it's screaming the whole time. I mean, especially the beginning and the end, you can hear the scream, but the whole time it, it to me, it sounded, um, do you know the origin of the term swan song?
0: The last the sounds song. that a swan makes before it dies? I don't know if and they it's even supposed make sounds. To be,
1: I don't know either, but it's supposed to be the most beautiful thing that they make.
0: Oh, yeah. That's what this well, made me
1: think of. That
0: is, but I didn't hear any screaming. No, uh, you did I did. Mm-hmm.
1: There was screaming the and verse, the instruments us- oh. and crash okay. and intense. It felt it felt like a not a scream in the traditional sense, but the things that you do physically when you're screaming, the crashing and the smashing and the breaking things and that it felt like that. It sounded like that to me. Mm. Wow, that the lyrics were all romantic to about death, but the music didn't sound like that at all. The music sounded like it was going back and forth between acceptance and resistance of death. Mm-hmm. Hmm.
0: He he said he was born from the ocean. Initially, I found I thought that, that was interesting. Yeah. And now he's going up to the heavens and the the earth is becoming very small, fading away. Right. Hmm.
1: I found it That's actually interesting beautiful. to look at the, the coloration as the video moved along and they start off and the only color you really see is the eyes. And then mm-hmm. as they move along, he comes in color and then the flowers around him pick up more color. And the, I don't know if that was makeup or the effect that they chose to have where they looked like they were painted in metal. That was interesting too.
0: Yeah, they were silver.
1: I don't know if they were actually silver or if it was just a question of it being in black and white.
0: There's something that
2: makes them glow at least. I think it's silver, I think it's face paint. And I think it looks amazing. The metallic effect. (laughs) I think it looked amazing. Yeah,
0: Mm -hmm. that's around the time when Steve Vai painted himself with silver for a video. I just remembered that, and then he had to. It took him a few months to wash it out of every crack. (laughs) Okay.
2: Okay. Tell us, Laura. uh, Some more curiosities about the time. In 1994, the following year, uh, both the vocalist Sakurai and the guitarist uh, Hoshino, they modeled for a Stop the AIDS event uh, and they walked a runway wearing clothes by Jean-Paul Gaultier. Oh. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's something unusual because um, in Japan, everything becomes a scandal or it's a uh, taboo. But they never cared about it and i think it's very honorable and sensitive uh, from their part uh taking part uh in the campaign about stopping aids and you know mm-hmm. walking the the cat way right
1: well and it's interesting mm. because there this is a band composed of of all males and i know that the call it semi-manufactured j-pop girls are encouraged to do as many things as they can to do modeling to do acting to do the music like they they those girls barely have a chance to breathe and i find it interesting that you would then suggest that the idea of this band any any members of this band doing modeling might be scandalous that's interesting well yeah but also the contrast of the women are encouraged to do the modeling and the men don't that's interesting Mm -hmm.
2: yeah Uh, yeah. throughout the years um, they were always asked some uh, weird questions you know like uh, personal questions about sexuality or uh, who they are attracted to because they always want to know more they always made uh they always made uh the questions they always answered those questions in a very uh, vague way like always leaving an opening for interpretation and mm-hmm. i that's my opinion but if they do that on purpose i think it's they are okay with us uh interpreting it the way we like and that also shows in some songs they have many songs about sexuality as well and they touch on um, lyrics that may um, that, that may give you an idea about uh, not only talking about girls but about men too about uh, some sexual behaviors that might be uh, taboo in the time mm. when people didn't actually uh, came out of closets or anything and they were already talking about it in their songs and in interviews. They were never uh, shy about that. You know they didn't come publicly saying anything about their sexuality, but they always uh, left uh, a marge for a margin for interpretation, which I think it's very interesting. Hmm.
1: Stop poking around in my stuff or I'm going to give you answers that don't make any sense and that people can mm-hmm. make up what they like.
0: Yeah.
2: <laughs> I felt I felt like like it was like that.
0: There was no no homo in this band. They didn't have that anxiety. That's good.
2: No. Oh no. Homo. Um, okay. There are some interviews like uh, 90s interviews or maybe 80s interviews in which they admitted to have been attracted to other guys. Oh they kinda admit they, they had the attraction. They used yeah. that word. Uh, you know, on Twitter, they just post many prints of interviews, written interviews. And it's it was very nice to, to read that, you know, how open and they were about it. And, you know, they never had anyone telling them what not to say or not what to do.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So following that direction, including uh, lyrics about, you know, sexual taboos and sexual experiences i selected a song from 1998 from an album called uh, sexy streamliner (laughs) (laughs) the
1: titles are great i have to admit there's a part of me that's going why are they why do they keep going for the shock value just play the music (laughs) Uh,
2: sorry, I got the year mistaken. It's 1997. Mm-hmm. Uh, this album is followed by some, um, some stuff that happened. Uh, okay, from, uh, I, I, I had a note written here I would like to read. Uh, from this uh, album that I played the song from, Darker Than Darkness, they kept on the experimental line of work. Uh, you could never expect what style they were going to play. It was always a surprise, and that kept people interested, and also the it got them the appreciation from the Japanese uh, music critics. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's kind of their their charm and their quality uh, surpassed the idea of music genre. They are, they were just known for being eclectic and unpredictable.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So they they I released. I feel like uh, that's
1: different from the way American critics do things. If you change your thing, yeah. American critics are like, "What? No, that's not okay."
2: That's so <laughs> funny. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, ninety-five, they released an album called Six Nine. Uh, Ninety-six, they released an album called okay. Cosmos. <laughs> yeah. Ninety-six, wow. they released an album called Cosmos. And I think okay. this song, the, the album title song, is really beautiful. They usually let the crowd sing this uh, in their concerts. Um, in that same year, 1996, uh, Sakurai had a, had a, almost had a meeting with death because he got uh, a, a bacterial infection called peritonitis.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, he spent like a month in hospital. And after that, they released, in 1997, they released the album Sexy Streamliner. Uh, This album talks a lot with the industrial style of music and also cyberpunk. Mm -hmm. Uh, They also began to play with the theremin a lot. So their songs were really uh, having the presence of the instrument called theremin. So now Mm -hmm. Imai plays the, he, he was playing the guitar and also uh the theremin in the concerts and in the albums. Cool. So I chose the song to represent uh this face, this experimental face, this electronic face. I chose the song called My Fucking Valentine.
1: All right. Let's go. Let's listen to My Fucking Valentine by Bucktech. Yep. That was Cyberpunk, all right. uh i don't especially when i went to look at the translation of the lyrics i'm going i want to like this song i liked some (laughs) of what the music was doing and then i look at the lyrics and i look at the way he's moving and the the whole so here's the thing for me every experience i've ever had with cyberpunk whether it's been in a book or it's been a game or a video game or music or whatever, it's not happy. Cyberpunk is not a happy place. It is, it is a dystopia. It is always a dystopia. And it's a dystopia that doesn't have anything to do with people. It's dystopic precisely because there's no humanity left in people. And so this particular song just makes me go ugh and shudder. Because no. <laughs>
2: hmm. What do you think, Laura?
0: First of all, I am very unhappy with the director of this live video, because he never <laughs> let us look at anybody for more than a second. That's- and this very interesting gentleman who was playing the theremin he was always shown in some skewed way from his waist up. Is something scary happening underneath his waist? Let me see <laughs> the man playing the theremin. Tentacles.
1: He's got tentacles. That's what it is.
0: Oh, okay. It's
1: <laughs> been grafted with cyber tentacles. That's what it is.
0: He look, he, the way he moved was so cool. And you, don't, you You. are not showing me the rock star playing the theremin on stage. What are you showing me? Anyway. <laughs> But that is one of the reasons. Those are crazy times. Okay, that is yeah. one of the reasons they,
1: why I don't really like to watch videos of concerts. The person controlling the camera never looks where I want to be looking.
0: Mm.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. There, uh, the footage they have throughout the '90s really pisses me off because uh, the quality is always terrible. I don't know why they did Climax together, which was excellent. Mm. They have old footage that's excellent but uh, everything from the 90s it was horrible horribly filmed i would say even though the the material is great um they haven't released footage from from their tour in 95 so we don't have access to that and this uh this live from 98 uh it's It's really good, but actually not that good, <laughs> because it's the, all we have. It's all we have since uh, 92 since Climax Together. This is what we got. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other recordings they did from live TV and such. It's just so lame.
0: It looks so much like a, a celebration of the millennium too, all these colors. Something very end of 90s about it. I can't even yeah. say what mm-hmm. it is. Yeah,
1: cyberpunk was, was really big and there was a kind of attempt during the time to, to make it seem less dystopic. Uh, hmm. Now I need to look up something else. Hold on. I'm not good at remembering dates of things, so I make connections and then I'm like, wait a minute, maybe this isn't correct. Okay. So the matrix the movie which is probably at this point the single strongest touchstone for cyberpunk future came out in 1999 mm-hmm. and so
2: but it did it before
1: well that's not <laughs> the point i mean that's not the point <laughs> because the matrix the movie didn't invent cyberpunk that mm-hmm. was that was a genre that's existed for 20 30 years before that um, i know at least it was just that's just the thing that you can reference that everybody goes, Oh, that's cyberpunk. Okay, I get it. Like, that's the touchstone now, even though that shouldn't be, it should be the neuromancer. But that's a different discussion. <laughs> I think I'm being fed information. No, baby, that's not the touchstone. My husband is trying to tell me that Blade Runner is the touchstone. No, Blade Runner is the touchstone for older people. If you tell younger <laughs> people about the Matrix, if you tell them about Blade Runner, they'll look at you funny. Like, what is that? This old, creepy, weird 80s movie. But if you tell them (laughs) The Matrix, they'll get it.
2: They'll get it. (laughs) I think I read somewhere that they really liked uh, Blade Runner. I I might have to check that. It wouldn't
1: surprise me. But Mm -hmm. the point I'm making here is that at the time that they were doing this cyberpunk music, at the time that they were having this was the time of a rise in fascination with the whole cyberpunk aesthetic and concept and genre uh, culminating in the release of The Matrix as a movie that really, really depicted what it was like. And there were some attempts to sort of rehabilitate it and make it seem like a cyberpunk, cyberpunk future wouldn't be all bad. And I don't think anybody actually succeeded in that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but that's that's a whole different discussion that really needs to go in the book section and not the music section
0: mm. okay Lara tell us about the next song alright um,
2: jumping to early 2000s uh, their take on uh, cyberpunk uh, they did more albums with that uh, style so from 95 until I would say 2002 they kind of insisted on <laughs> doing a cyberpunk and clubbing, uh, like clubbing scene music. I would, I would define like that. But then uh, the anime thing happened, right? Early two thousands, people got crazy about anime, and kind of uh, rock was rock was back. Basically. Oh, and so. many new oh. bands arose in the early two thousands, right? We have like the the second wave of Japanese rock, uh, guys that are being successful to this day. And I I get a feeling that they merged and they fit in with the same change in the music industry. So they began doing uh songs that were kinda uh rock-driven again mm-hmm. and it was a very productive time for them because they got uh two anime uh two two anime chose their songs i don't know if it was the opening or the ending i'm sorry because i i didn't mm-hmm. watch those animes <laughs> but they uh they had songs for an anime called X-X-Holic.
1: Ooh, they did xxxholic
2: yeah, they have a song in XXHolic called Kagero. Oh
1: from twenty
2: oh five, I guess. That would've
1: that would have been a heck of a crossover. XXXHolic was done by Clamp, which is the premier uh how do I describe these guys? Like half of the best known anime from the late nineties and early two thousands were clamp. One way or the other.
2: Like I'm Clamp familiar with was them. the
1: thing so if they were connected up with Clamp that's a heck of a fandom crossover
2: let me check if it was the ending or the opening it's the ending it says it's the ending number two Kagero
1: mm, yep. and I also another
2: anime another anime um, another anime chose uh, dress as mm-hmm. their opening opening song nice, mm-hmm. nice it's a i think it's an anime about vampires oh i forgot 1998 they released a single which was their first song used in a, in an anime mm-hmm. let me check that out too
0: okay but let's talk about the next song because sorry we think more about songs here
2: yeah it's just for uh curiosity sake <laughs> okay so they so they got in that world I chose a song from that era to represent um, the early 2000s and I chose a song called Romance.
1: Okay, let's listen to Romance by Bucktick. Even though the lyrics are all painful on that one, the song itself is easier to listen to. Kiddos, do not harass each other. Mama is busy.
0: Oh no! <laughs> Easier to listen to because it was there was know. less happening. No theremin and no crazy drums.
1: I don't know that that had anything to do with it. It just felt. I don't know. I, I don't know how to describe it.
0: Mm-hmm. So he is—he's like a vampire biting you, and you are. Yeah. Knife, knifing him in the chest.
1: Fighting back, I guess. I don't know.
0: Yeah, and before that, he and decorates you with flowers.
1: Yeah, the, well, vampires have been romanticized since the first book was released. <laughs> I might have opinions <laughs> on that.
0: <laughs> He's decorating you with flowers before you, before you pierce him, and he says, "Let's turn off the moon because the angels are watching."
1: As if you, so nice. As I if, like that. that that's like with the song um, about being killed by the sun. Like it, that's again, he doesn't want the light because that will reveal him. Mm. That's that's yeah. that's that same concept.
0: And I guess he's on the side of evil if he doesn't want the angels to see him, or well, he thinks he's evil.
2: Uh in, in Japan, Sakurai was known as like. A, like a prince of darkness, <laughs> it's the same, it's, it's like the same thing they did with Ozzy here in the Western world. In Japan, he was the prince of darkness, the king of darkness. There must be some pictures of, of him with vampire
1: teeth or something. Yeah.
2: I don't know if I have ever seen that.
1: I guarantee you they're out there. Now, whether or not- was kinda, That was kind of, that was kind of his fame. Whether or not those photos or those pictures are photoshopped is a different question, but I guarantee ah. you they exist
0: mm, Someone made them maybe So, okay, this is who i'm calling prince of darkness from now on and if someone is surprised that I don't mean ozzy who I pretty much dislike This this is That's it. That's
1: their problem. I yeah. will point them it to is.
0: Atsushi sakurai. Okay mm-hmm. I like this one. The melody was really nice yeah. too. Yeah
2: uh, what I like the most about the song is uh, the dissonant uh, keyboards. Yeah, you know, it feels it feels like they are not in tune, but you know, I don't know too much music theory different. to explain it. But you know what I mean.
1: It almost feels like they're playing a different song entirely. Hmm. And yet, it still works together. Yeah. A blue-eyed kid is over here begging me for treats.
0: You do you have treats?
1: Yes, I have treats.
0: Yep. Yeah, let's move on. What happened then?
2: Okay, so we are getting closer to a modern time, to our, to our misery and sadness. Right? No,
1: oh, no, we're not going to go but there.
2: <laughs>
1: we're going to enjoy the music. <laughs> Keep enjoy the music.
2: Uh, I am, I am. So in recent years, it became known that Sakurai uh, was a hopeless cat dad.
1: Oh dear. <laughs> he, he
2: even put the face of his eldest feline daughter called Kuromi-chan on the cover of a compilation album from 2020, uh, sorry, 2017. Oh. and in 2018 they released an album called number zero and one song from it became very popular amongst fans and this song is called gustav i chose this song because i think it's a fun and uh, fitting closing um you know for our tour through their career okay yeah, uh, you know they. I think uh, when they got to their, uh, when it got to 2010s and began, they they kind of began to get a little older. They kind of were bored with this. Uh, you know, we have to look, we have to look manly for TV or whatever. They they kind of gave up on suits. They gave up on masculine wear, and they just decided to go full blown than them- themselves. So the clothes got, they got everywhere, very colorful, and they they felt more comfortable at, at stage. Their performance was just getting better, and, and Sakurai was just became a beast on stage, and we love him for it.
0: Mm-hmm. So I chose
2: okay. um, as the last song. I chose a song called Gustave. It talks about cats okay. and
1: something else. <laughs> And something, and something else. <laughs> okay. Let's listen to Gustav by Bucktek. That was my favorite. Oh, that's my favorite song.
0: <laughs> You're <laughs> laughing
1: at me. Hush. No laugh at Panyas.
0: I'm laughing because I'm happy. <laughs> it's a thing I that do. That was so
1: cute. And yet, even then, you read the lyrics, and embedded in it is absolutely sexual references. <laughs> Every bit, sex references embedded in those lyrics. Mm-hmm. Of
0: course, the tail is erect. It's the tail. Ah. Uh-huh. Uh-huh.
2: he uh, he he's has going. got only two two modes he he's got the gloomy mode or
0: the horny mode,
1: uh, Yeah, apparently
0: yeah yeah or or a mix of the two mm. well,
1: the gloomy <laughs> mode is a little bit romantic, the horny mode, I'm not really sure it's romantic <laughs> i that's why i I thought it was a shame, only having six songs
2: because you don't know nothing yet. <laughs>
1: There are lots, you know, and lots of artists that. that we've done for that where that's the case though like mm. the artists that we recorded for the last session, they've been going for 50 years. Judas Priest has so much music and we can only touch on a little bit. Yeah. but that's kind of the way it is when you come to discover a new artist or even when the only exposure you have to an artist is radio play. You only get to to dip your fingers in just the surface. And if you want to know more, then you go explore. Mm
0: -hmm. That
1: sounded... That gave me mixed signals.
2: But anyway, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm really... (laughs) I'm really bummed that I couldn't show you a better video or a song. Because uh, he was wearing pants in this performance. There is a point... in in time that in which he he detested pants
1: (laughs) you know i think my husband would agree with him i think my uh, husband would agree with him
2: weird leather leather panties and harness and boots that go up to his thigh he was like giving giving the middle finger to the world and and he mm. said he was the most comfortable with that kind of clothing to perform. And I, I just, I just love him. <laughs> I just love him. Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, we have to leave something for our youngsters to go out and discover for themselves. We can't give mm. them everything. Yeah. We can't give them um, everything. Yeah, Dave Gahan,
2: Dave Gahan from The uh, Mode. He used to say he was. Uh, he used to say he's an overpaid stripper. I say I say Atsushi was the overpaid <laughs> stripper from Japan.
1: <laughs> could be. Could be. Or like the way that Ross Lynch insists that he's not a stripper and yet the video that he did with Troy Sivan <laughs> and I'm going, honey, you were fooling nobody. You're fooling nobody at all. Put your shirt back on.
0: <laughs> Laura, did you see Troy Sivan's video? One of you girls Did you see what? There's a there's a young gay singer. I can't Out of Australia. Yeah, Australia. He, his name is Troy Sivan, and he had a he had a big song recently with Ross Lynch in his video. We'll show you because it's it's right up your alley. I think
1: <sighs> it's absolutely fantastic. I, I would we're not doing a Driver that. Era, and we're not doing Troy Sivan today. So let's stay focused. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I would love to <laughs> hear. So that. what you're saying here, Lara, is that <laughs> is that. uh Atsushi so was revealed as a beloved cat dad, and so the thing he does is write a song in the persona of a cat about town. And the chorus is just cat, 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 cat. Yeah, he was a great songwriter. <laughs> I mean, and yet, honestly, it's a really good song because that's kind of catchy, and the fact is that. Japanese music, especially popular Japanese music, as distinguished from pop, is very, uh, very happy to rely on inserting English words. Mm. Uh, And I did. I have the history behind
2: that is not so happy, but I think it fits perfectly.
1: I have noticed, though, in all of these songs that you've given us, while they do that, they're not the sort of lyricists that they just pick a random word. Every time they use the English words, it suits to the lyrics. It makes sense. It matches. It's not just random, mm-hmm.
0: and I appreciate that. I appreciate that too. <laughs> and that first song that they submitted for to the big uh, Japanese channel, you you could have said, "Well, the sex was only in the in the English words," but it wasn't. No, it wasn't. All the no. Details. All the sexual details. Yeah, the he, he uses the
2: words. word sasayaku, which is to whisper, saying I want you. Whispering yeah. I want you. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Um I have I have like a, a closing message yeah, to okay. thank mm. everybody that helped me, uh, choosing the songs and getting all the facts together. Oh. Uh, I I didn't have the chance to say everything, but I can I can send you my file so you could have more uh, information.
1: You know what? But, Do you um... have that on? Is that on? Um google drive or something we can post a link yes, to it in it the is. show notes yeah let's post yes. a link to that in the show notes so just yeah. make sure the file is open and then people can go and read all this wonderful information that you and your fandom assembled for us it's, it's not written as a text but like that's bullet okay. points that's okay that's fine it doesn't matter I how the it's written or used as well what yeah, matters also is have the you put in when all I got this it. work so let's share it you put in yeah all this and
2: um so for for finals i just would like to add that uh the band the band has been uh 36 years um around they have released about 23 studio albums over 40 singles uh, and also have constantly put out numerous video recordings of their shows Oh, that's uh, Surely they, they are, I don't know what's going to happen in the future, but they surely are one of the most productive musical acts I, I have ever encountered. Uh, they might not be as famous as X-Japan or other bands alike, but they have a very passionate fan base and they keep increasing their, uh, their cult following. And that has not ended with uh, Sakurai's death. We will keep uh, his legacy alive, and we are going to keep honoring uh, Bucktick. So I would like to thank uh, people from the server I have created. It's called uh, BT Support Group. I have created that server uh, to cope uh, with his passing, with Sakurai's passing. And I've met wonderful people there. And I would like to thank people there that helped me uh, throughout this time, which is Katie, Basara, Honshu, uh, sorry, I was going to say a bad word. It's Kunstmühl, it's like in in German, and Sana. And there's also a guy that helped me called Filipe here from Brazil. Uh, he agreed to be my, my lab rat <laughs> so I could <laughs> so I could practice for the podcast oh, uh, honey and, and, and he was the one that uh, helped me to decide to make the final decision of the, the song choices so I would like to help uh, everybody there I forgot a name, sorry I forgot a girl from Brazil that helped me I forgot her name but I would like to thank her too and uh, that, that's it really Thanks, everybody. Oh, well. And thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Ponya, for giving me the opportunity to uh, embarrass myself talking about oh,
1: quit that a band <laughs> that I love so much. <laughs> well, I think I might have mentioned this back when I talked about Terry Pratchett as an author, but it is applicable to anyone, any beloved person who dies expectedly, unexpectedly, uh, the Jewish say, May their memory be a blessing. Uh, as long as a man's name is spoken, he is not forgotten. He is not truly dead. So we will keep speaking Atsushi's name. We will keep singing his music, and he will not be forgotten. He will be remembered forever.
2: For Acha. For Acha.
1: Mm-hmm. And that last song leads us in a lovely way to. What my cats are up to. Except again they've all seemed to have vanished. Papa went off somewhere and took them all with him. I have not seen the (laughs) fluffy one this morning either. I'm sure she's around somewhere. She's probably in the craft room. But I have not seen her. Buddy is lying here enjoying the sunlight coming in the window. And uh, Stormlight came in and visited while we were, were recording.
0: Oh.
1: So I gave her some treats. Uh, there was a Jana, but I don't know where she went she went to do little Jana things I guess I don't know I had a hard Mm -hmm. time getting out of bed this morning because there were three cats on the bed like how am I supposed (laughs) to get up when there are three cats on the bed this is not fair because you know Mm -hmm. that uh, one of the things that cats do is they emit sleep vibes even if they (laughs) are not sleeping if a kitty is lounging anywhere near you they're emitting sleep vibes they're trying to Mm -hmm. put you to sleep is what they do uh this is also corollary to the feline gravitational deferment theory which is an explanation of why when a cat stands on you he feels like he weighs so much more uh and also why cats shed the reason cats can jump like that is because they defer the application of gravity until later and then when they stand on you that's when that gravity applies and so they weigh more and the shedding is like a sub piece
0: of that when a kitty sheds is part of deferring gravity you are saying this with so much confidence that i'm not sure if you're joking
1: I mean, in terms of conspiracy theories, it's a pretty uh, pretty, uh, gentle one. It's a pretty gentle theory, so
0: there is... They do feel heavy when they're not standing. Sometimes if you haven't peed recently and they're somewhere near your stomach, they're very heavy too.
1: Yeah, uh, I think in a truly scientific sense, uh, it's it has to do with the weight of the cat on a very small space because it's not like their paws are actually very big. So even if your cat only weighs 10 pounds, if it's 10 pounds, but it's all pressing down on like three square inches of you, then of course they feel quite heavy. But I think the Mm gravitation, the feline gravitational deferment theory is much funnier. Okay. much, (laughs) Much sillier, especially if you happen to have a cat who can make prodigious leaps um, mm-hmm. Then then that is the case Or you have a cat like Mirari who's, Who seems to be quite large But is actually made of all fluff And makes giant leaves And then she sits on you and you're like I can't move Why can't I move mm-hmm. Why does this cat weigh so much How does this cat weigh so much It's so strange And then she gets up And there's like this stripe of fur She's left on you Like I don't understand She does this thing I don't. Cat, mm-hmm. Cats is crazy. Um, I don't think that has anything to do with Jana's ability to stand up and pick things up in her front paws, though. She's been demonstrating that a lot in the last couple of weeks since I fished all the toys out from under the couch. Because she has a couple of them that she particularly likes, and she'll pounce on it and pick it up in her front paws and then stand on her back legs and, like, wrestle with it. It's the silliest thing I've ever seen.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Hmm. Give me a kiss, buddy. No, no kiss. The
0: others don't do it.
1: No, not really. Buddy likes to lie down when he does things. He doesn't <laughs> stand up so much. And Marari <laughs> absolutely lies down. Like she will go over to the thing, lie down, and then drag it close to her chest and start bunny kicking. Like I don't know. <laughs> I don't. Marari is is. I mean, every kitty is a silly kitty. That's that's their job. That's what they do. And I'm pretty mm-hmm. sure that uh, Atsushi-san had tons and tons and tons of stories of the silly things that his cats did. And would tell them, probably to anybody who would listen, because that's what cat parents are like. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah.
1: That is what... But that's the the best
0: thing to listen to. I like it.
1: I mean... I think for some people, it's a bit like constantly hearing stories about someone's kids. Eventually, you're just like, can you talk about anything else? Do you have any (laughs) other topics of interest? No? This is the only thing you're interested in? Well, you're boring. You know, it's like the joke about talking to grandparents, and the first thing they do is open open their wallet and show you the pictures of the grandkids. (laughs) It's like that. Yes, buddy, you have the longest whiskers. Yes, you do. Yeah i his chin. And Buddy is one of those tuxedo cats. Like some tuxedo cats, their whiskers are black. Buddy's whiskers are white. So they stand out really sharply. And if you want to know where all the whiskers on a cat are actually located, find a tuxedo cat who has white whiskers. And you will notice mm-hmm. that there are whiskers in all kinds of places on a cat. Hello, Mirari. That aren't actually their face. -hmm. Like, kitties have whiskers on the backs of their legs. They have eyebrow whiskers. I wish I were closer to cats.
2: I have three dogs. They're amazing. Uh, My neighbor has a lovely Persian. Oh. Um, Her name is Margot.
1: Oh, that's. And she's very
2: fond of me for some reason. And that's how I kind of learned how to love cats.
1: Yep, kitties will will know who, they they have a sense about how a person feels about them, and I think it's also connected to the way that a cat considers politeness when they are looking at you or looking at them, it weirdly coincides with the way that a person who doesn't actually want the cat to talk to them behaves, which is why cats will always seem to gravitate towards the person that doesn't like them because they perceive that person's behavior as being inviting, which is sort of hilarious. Miss Mirari, what are you doing? Oh, you are a giant fluff. Ow! Do you need your toes trimmed? Yes, you do. Would you like to say meow into the microphone? No? No, you have had a treat. That is all you need? All right. All right. Okay. Oof! And then she kicked my breast. Oh! (laughs) The
2: the gravity began began to work again.
1: The gravity began to work again, and she said, no, I'm done. I going to jump (laughs) off of you. Boing. Oh, she's looking for more treats. That's what's going on. She doesn't want to be held. She wants treats. All right. All right. So let me give the... Oh, yep. I picked up the... I didn't even open the bag. I just picked it up. And she heard the crinkle and came over. I bought... uh, made by Nacho salmon cat treats and Mirari thinks these are the best things in the world she thinks they are salmon. the very best things but she can only has one she cannot has more than one or she will explode so yeah the kitties have not done anything special or spectacular although right now they're pestering me for treats no you cannot has any more mm-hmm. no you as fat kitties you as fat kitties <laughs> Donna's like, no, look at my skinny flanks. Don't care. (laughs) Don't care. Yep. Don't care. Okay. So let's do something different. Today's author is Robin McKinley. And compared to other authors that I have suggested before, she has not really written any series. She's written a couple of books that go together that are set in the same world space but in general she is a prolific producer of short stories and almost everything else she has created has been a standalone novel. Many of them are female-centric retellings of standard European fairy tales or standard European stories um, including two different versions of Sleeping Beauty. But the books of hers that I like the best aren't those. I first encountered her when I found a book entitled The Hero and the Crown. Which sounds really simplistic. And, but it's the story of effectively an unwanted princess. Who thinks that during most of her growing up years. That she has in fact no share of the magic which characterizes her family. It turns out that, in fact, she has a great deal of it. And that's why it hasn't shown itself until much later. Because she has so much. And then she sort of Mm -hmm. accidentally tried to, to kill it off. By devouring a plant she should never have stuck in her damn mouth. But the end result is that because of doing that, that leads to the whole story and to the grand finale where she kills a dragon that is... The dragons are really, really not good in this world. Uh, and the the older, the bigger, the stronger the dragon, the more emotional effect it can have on the people. It depresses them. That kind of thing. Uh, oh, but I love dragons. Uh, these They're are my not, favorite mythical creature. <laughs> these are not good dragons, unfortunately. These are these are very bad dragons. And she also ends up having to defeat, like. The climax is basically her kind of defeating, through simply being herself in many ways, three different kinds of evil that threaten her homeland and in part happen to coincide. I um, really love that premise. And she she learns a lot about who she is as a person, but also who she wants to be as a person. And there, there comes a long point where she has to accept that she's not ever going to be like the people around her because of circumstances that aren't in her control. And this isn't even a case of, oh, I'm a princess. I'm different. She's not even going to be like the other nobles and royals. And she has to mm-hmm. accept that because that's the result of circumstances over which she has zero control. She cannot change them. She can only figure out how to cope with the results that that gives in her life. And I don't actually know which came first. Yeah, okay, so I'm looking at my notes here. As it turns out, I learned later, The Hero in the Crown is technically a prequel to a book called The Blue Sword, which was published two years earlier, and takes place in the same world space but when you first encounter our characters it doesn't seem like the same world space at all and some of that is a function of time passing the hero in a crown is a prequel set quite far back in the past Mm. but some of it is a function of the fact that the blue sword begins in a piece of the world that is I guess the best way to describe it is is it it is an echo of our world during the colonial period, especially the later colonial period um, when England was controlling India and such like that. And our main character comes because of the death of her parents to live in the lands bordering our familiar lands from the hero and the crown Because that's where her brother, as an officer in the army, is stationed. And she has nowhere else to go. And she is slightly strange and slightly different and doesn't want to be like the other semi-noble, I guess. Um, Mid-high-level women of her culture. She doesn't want to be like them. She doesn't. And then she encounters the nobility from the land that is the center of the hero and the crown and learns that she has she shares some of their blood that i think it's her great-grandmother was a noble of that land and that she carries a measure of their magic and that's part of why she's so different And she goes on on the usual kind of adventures that you might think of. She gets kidnapped, and she fights back, and she learns the language. And because of the magic in her blood, she picks up their customs really easily. But she never quite gives up the person that she was before. She doesn't completely go native, which I think is a very interesting way of looking at it. Because some of the choices that she ends up making in the end, as both sets of armies go to fight a familiar evil although the Outlanders don't believe in the magic, uh, the choices Mm -hmm. that she makes are not at all the kinds of choices that the land of the magic would expect. She goes off and she disobeys orders and basically she goes off to try to fight on her own and defend a pass that uh, really only needs a small army to defend it. Um, And basically what ends up happening is she pulls the mountains down on her head but the the two strongest connections between the two books are the existence of the magic and the existence of the titular blue sword which is a sword semi-imbued with magic that is carried by both heroines and which through which very briefly, the heroines of the two books communicate with each other to hmm. to provide some encouragement. And I'm fascinated by the fact that these are clearly set in the same world that the many of the the cultural and outlying elements of the stories that make them what they are are the same, but they're such different stories. there is there's no, there's no echo of personality from one heroine to the other. They're not really that similar except insofar as they don't quite fit in with the culture they were born to. But other than that, Mm. they're very different people. They make very different choices. They have very different adventures. Um, And yet it is so clearly set in the same world. And I'm fascinated by, by how that works and how clearly that represents um, a kind of reality in our world that, of the way time changes things, of the way that different people can have such different reactions to things and to experiences, that just because you have a similar history, just because you have the same skill, the same magic, whatever, uh, it doesn't mean that your choices will be the same. And I find that Mm -hmm. absolutely fascinating. Um, and another kind of significant element to these stories is the way that the the magic is an important element and helps define where the story goes but even within the context of the story there's really not a whole lot known about it it's a mysterious force that nobody quite knows uh what can be done with it or where it came from or whether or not it's actually intrinsically good or bad. And they never come to those decisions. There's a lot of mystery. There are a lot of things that are left unrevealed. You're sort of given a glimpse into this world space without having all the ends neatly tied up. And I find that Mm -hmm. to be characteristic of her other
0: works as well. Um, And she... Just like in life just like in life there's a lot you don't know and you, sh- you should make peace with that, that is
1: very true that is very yeah true.
0: sometimes that's not even
2: uh, necessary. it kind of yeah. maybe it can spoil the magic because i think it's a part of literature it's being able to use your imagination and connect the dots yourself yeah. and th- in this case she she leaves the opening so we can um be part of the story and maybe come up with our own explanation
1: yeah and that links into something i've noticed with fandom stuff in general over the last decade or so that fans will come up with a theory about something about frequently it's you know it's shipping because that's the preoccupation of 50 percent of fandom um (laughs) but other people will say no that can't be so because we haven't seen it and I find it interesting that in terms of book fandom, uh, TV show fandom, whatever, they always say the same things It's like that can't be real because we haven't he didn't show us that. And I find that to be very odd in contrast to the fact that there are a lot of stories that we're not given everything we can't be given everything. There's not enough space on the page. There's not enough time in the show to give us all of these things that people say they want as proof for these theories. And on the one hand, you know, I really admire the people who take these loose ends, these bits that we're not given because we can't be and begin to build their own stories off of them. And I kind mm. of despise the people who were like, well, that can't be real because they didn't show us that. Where did your imagination go? Why did you read this if mm. you didn't want to imagine in all of the rest of the curlicues of the world? Mm. What yeah. happened to you? That's not how some people I guess. think. Uh, mm. But one of the other things that I love about this particular author is that while these two stories are fairly closely tied together... Very few of the rest of her books are, Um, and many of them are wildly different from each other and are linked only by the fact that the same person wrote them and they're all speculative fiction. Uh, One of my other favorite books of hers is called Sunshine, and I was initially attracted to read it because it was called Sunshine, and I thought, well, that seems interesting. And it turns out that it's the story of a girl who, again, has magic. And in the world that she lives in, insofar as people have any kind of magic, it tends to be kind of elementally related, although it isn't necessarily elementally related to the four classical Greek elements. And it turns out that her element is, in fact, sunshine. And I ended up feeling quite... uh, quite attracted to this character because there's an early part of the book that describes in fairly significant detail what it feels like to have seasonal affective disorder, what it feels like to be the sort of person who is essentially solar powered and and how frustrating it can be to have people not understand that in the winter when there is less sun, you're suffering in a way that is almost impossible to describe and people are like Mm -hmm. well just no there is no just i need the sun and there isn't enough um Mm -hmm. and i found that to be wonderful and interesting and in fact that's the character is called sunshine in the book although that's not her name Uh, but partly because of this characteristic and then it turns out that she lives in a world with vampires and Mm -hmm that because of her affinity with sunshine she can do things to them with them that are very very unusual the vampires in these books have the the classic aversion to sunlight in fact but because of her ability she is able to rescue one vampire from another group of vampires and carry him out in broad freaking daylight Because as long as he's touching her, she can shield him from the effects of the light. And a significant underpart of the story is the romance that they come to develop. And yet that's that's not the important part of the story. Like it's there, but it's a kind of a wild and weird romance that's very suitable to the fact that as you move on through the book, you discover that it's a wild and weird kind of book. And of all the books she's written, this is the one that I feel she left the most loose loose ends in. This is the one where you are dropped into this story and there is clearly massive amounts of information you are not being given. How did the world get to be this way? Why are there wild places people can't go into? Where did the vampires come from? What about the other magical creatures we're encountering? Why do people have magic? Is this normal? What's the rest of the history? You know? And she ends up getting pulled into a a part of her world that she almost didn't know existed. And we're given very little information about that, too, except insofar as it directly touches her. And so there's Mm -hmm. so it's very mysterious. And it's one of the few vampire books that I actually truly enjoy. The author makes Mm -hmm. absolutely no bones about the fact that, that vampires, including the one she rescued, prey on humans. That in many ways, they do so in ways that violate what we think of as consent. And that this is not great, that they are not great people, uh, but that maybe they can change. Or maybe the default assumptions are different. And our heroine doesn't really fall in love with the vampire because he's beautiful. As a matter of fact, appearance isn't really discussed in the books at all. And I also find that very interesting. I find it to be an extremely unique twist on the standard uh, human girl vampire romance. And then the next book of hers that I picked up and mm-hmm. fell in love with is completely different from that. Uh, it's called <laughs> Palace. And Palace is the story of a world space where the land itself is kind of magical, uh, and in a in a Fisher King kind of way, that there are people born, or or later inherit um, magical characteristics that enable them to bond with the land that they live in, their demesne, and soothe it, read it, connect with it, make decisions. That help to keep it in a good state. And I in, wonder, I
2: wonder what was the inspiration for that. Book. I would love to know the inspiration. Yeah, it sounds, it
1: sounds beautiful the way you describe the idea. I would, I would love to know so much more about this world space, but there is, there's practically nothing that we we know only what is in the books. There are no other books. There's nothing else. Um, again there is a thread of romance in this book uh that because of the world space in which she set it it's it's a world space that's very reminiscent of mid-1800s english um estates uh the, the farming estates and and the Lots of them are are populated by the people who farm and they're the little people and they do the things and, and, you know, and then there's a master and the rulership, the main rulership of the estate is inherited from that, but it can be passed along. And because of the magic of the land, the idea of passing along the rulership of a demesne from one family to another is fraught with concern. Because what if the land doesn't accept this person? You know, the, the land is, is attached mm. to this bloodline. What happens? And the whole thrust of this particular story is that, in fact, this particular domain may not have an heir. Because the original heir managed to get his ass killed by doing some stupid stuff. Um, and his sibling was given to the temple... And they are described as being elemental temples. And as you move through the ranks of the priesthood, you take on such characteristics of the element that you become other than human. And so there is a question as to whether or not this other son can come back enough from that stage that the land will accept him or that he'll even be capable of being around people. Because, you see, he went to the Temple of Fire. And when he first comes back, Mm -hmm. his touch burns. And not even on purpose, Mm -hmm. by accident. And the accident that took the life of the original heir also took the life of one of the members of the ruling circle, the member known as the chalice. It's never entirely clear what exactly the purpose is of the chalice, um she always has a connection with some kind of liquid usually water and in meetings of the circle to govern to do whatever by crafting a chalice a cup filled with the liquid of choice and some stones And maybe some other things that have uh, semi-magical connotations in the way that in in our world people say that amethyst wards off drunkenness. That kind of thing. Mm -hmm. The problem is, uh, not only is our prospective heir halfway into the realm of fire, but our new chalice didn't know she was chosen. She wasn't trained. She wasn't apprenticed. It was very unexpected. It just chose her. And so she has no idea what's going on. She has no clear idea what she's supposed to do because she's always been an ordinary beekeeper and her chalice liquid is honey, (laughs) which is very unusual (laughs) and rare. Uh, But if you know anything about how honey in real life works... There's a, there's a wonderful underlying connection between the fact that her chalice liquid is honey and the air is connected to fire. Honey is often used to soothe burns. It is antibacterial as hell. You can leave honey sitting out on a shelf and it will be fine. Uh, Honey never goes Mm -hmm. bad. And she does, in fact, use Honey to treat the burn that he accidentally gives her. And there are all these other characters in the story that see this burn and the fact that the heir has burned the chalice, who's one of the significant members, is that that's a sign that he's not going to succeed and the land will never accept him. And he's a bad omen. And, of course, the end result is that the other prospective heir is not a good person and even though they have suggested to our chalice that she should marry him in order to bind him to the land. She wants nothing to do with this man. He doesn't see her as a person. He only is interested in, in ownership. And in the climax of the book, her bees sting him to death. She doesn't tell them to, it just happens. Yeah. Like she's honestly kind of panicked about it yeah. because bees, when they sting the honeybees, they die. Bees get one sting and they die. They're not like wasps. Mm-hmm. This is why wasps are are little demons from hell. They can keep stinging you. But honeybees, they get one and they die. And she's going, my bees have sacrificed themselves. I don't understand. This is not what I wanted. And it turns out that as part of that sacrifice, they also enable the heir to come partway back from the realm of fire. Enough back from the realm of fire that he can govern. He still has a touch of fire about him. uh, And although... Although there's no clear sense of falling in love between himself and the chalice throughout the story, it's much more focused on her freaking out about how do I do it. There is an underlying thread of the two of them gravitating towards each other because they both feel so out of place. And so when the story ends with them agreeing to marry for similar reasons as proposing her to marry the other potential heir, they're okay with it. And there is the suggestion at the end of the book that they could come to love each other. And that they will certainly be able to get along well and be happy together. Sounds lovely. Yeah. And it's just... It's again, it's such a weird little book, but I love it because it is so different from your your traditional kind of fish out of water stories and your traditional kind of of young son inherits the land. And it's the magic system that makes it different. But you can see in all of these Mm -hmm. books I've described, our significant character is female, and yet every single one of her female characters is a little different. Um. Aaron goes out mm-hmm. and fights dragons, but Marisol, Marisol couldn't fight if you paid her. Marisol is is peaceful and is shocked and dismayed when her bees kill. Um, you know they're all very different, but they're also all what I think of validly as strong female characters. Uh, Sunshine, mm-hmm. uh, she she fights in that she punches a couple of people, but she's not really very good at it. What she's good at is baking. She finds the magic odd and confusing (laughs) and doesn't really know what to do with it. But again, we have a character here who is not necessarily confident in who she is, but learns to grow and accept what she is and what she knows and the abilities that she has and to take on these challenging situations without merely sitting down and going, whoa, I want someone to rescue me. In every case, mm-hmm. the, the girl in question sets out to figure out what's going on some way or another. And maybe that setting out just means that she sits down and thinks about it really hard. But there's no, there are very rarely circumstances in any of these books where the characters are caught in a situation that is confusing and, and or dangerous and go, I can't get out of this on my own. Someone must rescue me. They may think I can't get out of this on my own. But the next thought is, okay, what can I do? I can't get out. What can I do? Mm -hmm. What do I do now? It's not, oh, I'm going to be passive. It's never passive. And compared Mm -hmm. to a lot of writing that is touted as much more feminist, I feel, I find this to be a very appealing way of doing feminism. The emphasis is not on their femininity. The emphasis is not on them as a woman. They are characters experiencing things who happen to be female.
0: Yeah, just like being a woman, you are a human being who happens to be female and you have to go through life.
1: Exactly. Um, She's also written a retelling of the Robin Hood story whose major focus is on Marion. And there again, I like that. wow! There again, Marian takes charge of her own future. Uh, the traditional element of the story, where Robin is lured to an archery tournament in order to be captured by the sheriff, um, instead of Robin going, Marion goes, and she wins. Um, other mm-hmm. elements like that. It has been a long time since I have read some of the others. So I can't describe them as clearly, but I can't imagine they're any different. Um, uh, Panya, do you think they made uh, this
2: version made justice to the character in comparison to the original?
1: It's difficult to say with Robin Hood in particular because Robin Hood, like the stories of King Arthur, has no true original. What we think yeah, of
2: usually women—they're just you
1: know—I
2: uh, feel like. They are not portrayed um, in a way that's respectable, you know. They just suffer violence and all that stuff. And, you know, their feelings are not well explored. So I was really interested to know if in that version we get to see uh, a version of
1: her that is more uh, relatable, right? I think it's probably fair to say that the version of her is, in fact, much more relatable. Uh, uh, the, the Wikipedia article says, notably, three of the most important characters are women, all of whom escape marriage to prospective spouses chosen by their father. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but it does keep the traditional, again, the traditional element of the story that is Robin and Marion falling in love. But uh, what I remember of it, this is not, again, this is not the sort of story wherein uh, Robin uh, sweeps her off her feet and she feels that she has no choice or she is given no choice. This is a circumstance mm-hmm. where it is a mutual relationship. I don't remember there being significant parts of the story where he falls over himself to protect her under circumstances where that doesn't make any sense, where she would potentially be able to protect herself. Um, The element of the story where where he behaves like that, she's hurt. She's already wounded. She's already ill and, and in danger. And so, of course, at that point, he does say, I will protect you. Because in those circumstances, it is valid to look at someone and say, oh, I don't think you can protect yourself. You're bleeding. Stop bleeding first, and then we'll talk about it kind of thing and it does pick up on the fairly traditional romantic element of I didn't realize how much I loved you until I thought I was going to lose you but that's Mm. for all that it's a traditional romantic element it is traditional precisely because it is fairly true to life there are many many romances in real life where that is the case where you don't realize how important someone is to you and how much you rely on them until they go away until you think that you may not be able to rely on them anymore. And then you say, no, wait a minute. This is how I feel. I didn't realize I felt this way. I didn't put the word to it. And so I I have no problem with that being contained in a story unless you get ridiculous about it. Um, But I very much like her work because for all that it treats with a lot of familiar and traditional stuff, It is much more fantastic than I feel a lot of fantasy stories are. It takes in these traditional elements and then it looks at them through a prismatic kind of lens. Through a different way, as if you were looking up through water. Something that just makes them seem different. And Mm -hmm. some of that, I think, is in fact her writing style. I think she has a wonderful lyrical kind of writing style that is is very um i want to say soothing almost it's very easy for me to read i don't struggle with trying to figure out what it is she's trying to say or anything like that and compared to other authors of speculative fiction although there are definitely elements of the story that can be looked at and read as commentary on modern life or commentary on various prejudices. That's not forefronted. The story is about the events that happen one after the other, and if you choose to get out of it elements such as don't treat people who are different from you badly, or don't make fun of the person who slays the dragons, or um don't screw around with your chalice and then get your get both of yourselves killed you know if you get that out of you out of it that's you she's not forefronting that
0: (laughs) Mm -hmm. i'm listening to these stories where women are the main character and i'm so not used to that and as someone who realized in her 30s that i also like women I'm wondering if I had more media like this, if I had had more books like this, would I have realized earlier that I can actually be happy falling it's in possible. love with a woman? possible. I don't
1: know. I mean, I didn't exactly set out when I constructed the list of authors that I wanted to give you guys to have it be half male and half female but i am looking through the list of the people i picked Mm -hmm. as i walked through my library and and thought about the books that i liked best and it does kind of fall out that way that it's about half male and half female and that the the thing that makes me like a particular author's work is not what gender do they front as their protagonist character. It's how do they treat all the characters in their stories.
0: Mm-hmm. And I am looking at my list of bands for meowcore and suffering because there's barely any women. But it's it has to do with my genre as well, not just that my may taste be part of it. Although
1: theoretically, and looking at my list, you wouldn't be able to prove this, but theoretically at least speculative fiction is dominated by men. Um, Which, Mm -hmm. I mean, from my perspective, the idea of that is nonsense. The very first two speculative fiction authors I encountered when I was rummaging around looking for books to read happens to be women. I didn't pick them up because the name of the author was female. I
0: picked them up because the story seemed appealing. And then... Mm -hmm. Just like the great cooks of men and then who's doing the cooking on this this planet.
1: But that's again a different discussion. Uh, But I mean there are authors on my list for whom I think it is fair to say that they are designing their characters to a certain extent to bring certain kinds of prejudices to the forefront in their books. Um, But Robin McKinley is not one of them. Robin McKinley's point, perspective, um, purpose in telling stories is to tell fairy tale-like stories. They don't shy away from the darkness in people, but invariably people do get a happy ending. The evil is vanquished or redeemed. In some cases, it's redeemed. Um... And it is it is told in a fairy tale kind of way, not the Disney kind of fairy tale, but the original, the original kind of, of Brothers Grimm collection kind of fairy tales. Which again, those were a little bit altered from the original stories, but that's the nature of stories that are passed in that way. We think of, for example, mm-hmm. the written down version of the Odyssey as being the definitive version of the story, but I guarantee you that if we could go back in time and sit round fires and listen to that story being told, there would be differences. Every teller would have differences, would have things that they chose to emphasize, things that they chose to leave out. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that makes tale clusters such as Robin Hood stories and the matter of britain the stories of king Arthur, so fascinating to me in particular is that there is no there is no definitive version we've gotten used to this idea of there being a definitive version and of to a certain extent the author having a final say on what the story really means but i think we've discussed in previous podcasts how that isn't always the best way to handle it and the authors that we like best have a tendency not to do that. And the same thing is true with the songwriters that they invite us into that into their spaces that they've created and then we may take out of it what we want. So mm-hmm. yeah, if you're looking for something kind of mystical, kind of fairy tale like different from the usual run of fantasy, I definitely recommend checking out Robin McKinley.
2: I would love to know if the Vampire book, uh, I would love to know if there are uh, versions in Portuguese translated.
1: Uh, uh,
2: if there if aren't, I it's out. okay because I, I love reading in English just like as in Portuguese. That is... Sunshine. What was the title? Sunshine. sunshine. Uh, it reminded me of that goat song. Early, yeah.
1: Sunshine. Um, mm-hmm. And there was, you What's made her me name think again. Of a thing. Sorry? Robin McKinley. Uh, let's see if I can find out. Marvel by
2: Robbie McKinley. Sunshine.
1: I do mm. not know if there I cannot find anything that tells me if it has been translated but I don't know I have to I'm just looking
2: up at Amazon books
1: I have to admit that I do find uh, for for some authors I, the idea of them being translated I think is okay but there are some specifics to her writing that I don't know how well they would translate. You know, it's a bit like reading translations of of Japanese songs, and there are are Mm -hmm. elements and ways in which things mean things in their original language that are difficult to translate, they don't carry.
2: Yeah, no version in Portuguese, but I think that's also cool.
1: Yeah, I don't know
2: that any no, of her it's, books. It's because I would I would like um I would like to uh recommend her work <laughs> to a few friends. That's why I was interested because I I love reading in English. Uh I think the recent books I have I have read, all of them uh were in English.
1: Not in Portuguese. Mm-hmm. That's great. It's so hard to tell if something has been translated.
0: You start making a lot of footnotes and uh, leaving a lot of foreign words, but you tackle it. Well, you you would know
1: actually of the three of us, you would know best. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't even think about that. I'm sorry. (laughs) I've always read a lot, so um,
2: I'm okay with that. Um, And the theme, the theme of, you know, fantasy books and all, I'm, I'm okay with that, too, because I, I grew up reading Aragon.
1: Mm. So I think I can get I, I, I have can opinions this. about Aragon. <laughs> oh, I have opinions about Aragon. That's a different It was special. my childhood. All right. <laughs> I'm I glad that you enjoyed them. I am glad that they were good for you. I did not find them to be well-written. Uh, and I, I found myself to be... Uh, Mildly offended by the fact that Apparently at least one of the reasons they were published Is because his father was involved in a publishing company And I think that's cheating Ah,
2: that's kind of sad to know
1: I think that's cheating
2: Yeah Um, I think I have one book already to, to finish the series The green one But I remember when I read the first book It was eh, it was okay the best one was eldest it was the second book and then the third book i, I felt kind of disappointed because it wasn't as good as the second one.
1: Oh well but so there we are meowsters we have a wonderful japanese band that is unfortunately in mourning right now and we have ridiculous cats being ridiculous and we have An author of all kinds of weird and interesting things. Mm
0: -hmm. So that's it from us. And we'll take turns to wish you things now. I wish you guys, uh, uh, I wish you as always to uh, take your pills if you have pills to take. And uh, don't lose hope, even if things are hard. And uh, come join. Come join us if you like punk. Come join us in this morning, which they started long ago because they've That's been singing true. about yeah. death for a while. That's thank you,
2: for listening. thank you guys. I I appreciate the opportunity and I I hope I made him proud. I tried. I tried covering all the facts about the band. I tried honoring uh, what he has done. Of course, it's it's impossible to do everything, but. I I just hope I just hope I I did a good job and he doesn't throw a
1: brick from the sky <laughs> at me. I do not think he will throw a brick from the sky at you, but if you should unexpectedly discover that a kitty hisses at you, that may indicate displeasure. But if the kitty Aww. purrs at you, then you'll know try to be friends with the kitten. No, if the kitty purrs at you and demands pets, then you will know that he approves. Aww... Okay, I'll keep that in mind. And for me, uh, remember to grow your hair as long as you like, to uh, listen to as much heavy metal as you want, and take care of yourself. We know the world can be a rough place, but there are still beautiful things in it. Let yourself enjoy the beautiful things, even if there's pain along with them. Mm
0: -hmm. Bye,
1: Meowsters.
0: Bye.